Let's pray, and, uh, and we'll get back into the Word of God together. Father, we were reminded in the family prayer this morning, as Kathleen was praying, um, about the brokenness and the violence that takes place on this earth that has taken place right here in our own nation, Lord God. How good it is to know that you are the unchanging God. You are the God who we can approach as friends. You have called us friends. We can boldly approach your throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And you are the holy God. You are the God who created the entire universe. Every creature and every material object has come out of your mind and by your word. And you are holy. And it is amazing that we can approach you, Lord God, as creatures who are born in sin and who struggle with sin. But you have redeemed us and rescued us by your son, Jesus Christ. And so we're just thankful today that we can, first of all, come to you and that you have revealed to us justice, righteousness, mercy. You've commanded us to love our neighbor, to love our enemy. We thank you for the revelation that you have given us, Lord, and that you have not left us as human creatures to figure things out on our own, on the horizontal plane, but Lord, you have given us your revelation, your life-giving word. And I pray, Lord, as we open it now, that the reverence that we have already experienced in this time of worship through music would just continue now as we look at this passage where your greatness, your otherness, your transcendence really comes to the fore. Help us now, Lord. And after hearing the word, help us to go out and be doers of it. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, the Ark of the Covenant had been constructed during the time of Moses at God's command and according to God's specifications. The Ark of the Covenant was a rectangular box made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. On its top was a solid gold lid featuring two angelic cherubim, and inside the ark were three sacred items from Israel's history. The stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, a jar of manna from the wilderness years, and the budding rod of Aaron the priest. But most crucially, most crucially, the ark had to do with God's presence on earth. God's presence on earth. It was the throne and the footstool of God's presence on earth. The ark was Israel's, ancient Israel's, most sacred object, its most significant sacred object. Well, by the, by the time that David had captured Jerusalem and had made that city into Israel's capital, the Ark of the Covenant had spent decades moving around to various places. It had been in Shiloh, and then it had spent some time in exile 
uh, with the Philistine people, then back to Israel to a place called Beth Shemesh, and then finally to a place called Kiriat Yerim. But now David, in a highly symbolic move, wanted to move the ark out of Kiriat Yerim into Jerusalem. God's throne, the ark itself, would come to where David's throne was in the city of Jerusalem. There would be a merger now in the city of Jerusalem of the divine throne with the human throne of David. And so we pick up the story this morning at 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn there. The verse reads, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So just get this picture. There's a, a good deal of men here that are gathered with David. David is getting ready to fetch the ark from Kiriat Yerim to bring it to Jerusalem. And he organizes this massive military escort for the procedure. And it's significant that he gathers 30,000 men to go and get the ark because in earlier days, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when the Philistines had captured the ark, Israel had lost 30,000 men in that particular battle. So now here is David gathering the same number, 30,000 men, to go and get the ark. Verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bela Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now just so we're not confused here, if we're following along, that place in the verse named Bela Judah is another name, an alternate name for Kiryat Yerim. It's the same place. So they're bringing out the ark of, from Bela Judah, otherwise known as Kiryat Yerim. But we need to focus on the language surrounding the ark itself here in verse 2. I want you to concentrate on this. It says, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, or we could rightfully translate that, the ark of God, which is called by the name of Yahweh of armies, Yahweh of armies, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. It was Yahweh, the warrior God, who had just recently commanded armies to defeat Israel's foe, the Philistines. And now here in the scene, it's his ark, God's ark, God's throne, God's footstool that is retrieved in order to be brought over to Jerusalem. And we pause here to make this observation. This was pointed out to me uh, by the commentator Ronald Youngblood. The observation is this, that in this chapter of Scripture, in 2 Samuel 6, it is quite significant that we have the phrase, Ark of God, seven times, 
And we also have the phrase, Ark of Yahweh, or Ark of the Lord, seven times throughout the chapter. Seven is, of course, Scripture's number of completeness, the number of perfection. So it's like the author in this section is at pains to let us know that this ark completely or perfectly belongs to God. It is the ark of God. It was built according to his command at his specifications. It is the ark of God seven times. It is the ark of the Lord seven times. And as they transport this ark from Kiryat Yerim to Jerusalem, human beings should remember that the ark is God's, and they should treat it with due reverence. With due reverence. The ark is God's. The ark is all about God. According to this same verse, God sits enthroned, where? On the cherubim. And the cherubim are on the lid of the ark. The ark belongs to God. God's presence surrounds this ark. The ark is God's earthly residence. Now, before we continue into verse 3, I want to take us to June 1879 in the nation of Scotland. On June 1st, 1879, over in Scotland, the Tay Bridge first opened, uh, opened itself up to passenger train traffic. The Tay Bridge had been designed by an engineer named Thomas Bush. Queen Victoria herself crossed the Tay Bridge only 19 days after its official opening. And six days after that crossing, she knighted Thomas Bush for his efforts in designing and in crafting this huge bridge. Well, six months then went by, and then one day in late December of the same year, 1879, a long portion of the Tay Bridge collapsed into the water during high winds, and a train carrying 75 passengers plunged into the water, killing all 75 people. Well, after that very tragic accident, investigators found that there had been a number of faults and insufficiencies in Bush's design of the bridge, all of which put together resulted in this catastrophic failure of the structure with 75 people dead. Well, friends, as we proceed now to verse 3 of our passage, it doesn't take us long, as we read this carefully, to start recognizing various faults and insufficiencies in David's procedure for transporting the ark to Jerusalem. Faults and insufficiencies that are going to end up in a catastrophic, tragic moment, like when that train plummeted into the water. So let's go to verse 3 
David's large entourage is in Kiriat Urim, and they carried the ark of God. Remember whose ark is it? It's God's ark. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. The first fault or insufficiency in this design of carrying the ark back to Jerusalem is found in that little phrase, new cart. The ark belonging to God was put atop a new cart. Two red flags here. First of all, back in 1 Samuel 6, when the Philistines wanted to move this very ark that they had captured at the time, they came up with the idea to put the ark on a new cart. Same language in 1 Samuel chapter 6. So when David and co. decide here to put God's ark on a new cart, what are they doing? They are copying Philistine technology. They are imitating the Philistine approach to carrying God's ark. Not an advisable plan. And then second red flag, didn't the ark's owner, the ark's resident, God himself, did he not command in the law of Moses, in Exodus chapter 25, that his ark was to be carried using specifically designed poles that were fitted through rings on the sides of the ark. So the fact that the ark is put on an ox cart here is a complete violation of what God laid out in his law. This is a major fault in David's transportation design. And we suspect as we read this that it's going to lead to a very bad outcome. The rest of verse 3 and into verse 4 says that these guys, Uzzah and Ahio, it's like Ohio but with an A on the front, Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with what? The Ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Now, what's missing here at this point in the story is any indication that Uzzah and Ahio were of the necessary Levite pedigree to be transporting the ark. In Numbers chapter 4, and again in 1 Chronicles 15, God commanded that only a certain clan of the Levites, the Kohathites, only a certain clan of the Levites were to be transporting the ark. And we get no indication in the text here that Uzzah and Ahio were from that clan, yet here they are doing this most sacred work. Faults and insufficiencies in the design of the transporting of this ark to Jerusalem. And then verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. Again, the Lord is in between the cherubim on the ark. 
his house, celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So there's this, get the picture here, this musical, noisy celebration as they blissfully and improperly transport God's ark toward Jerusalem. Verse 6, And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakon, Uzzah put out his hand, his hand to the ark of who? Of God. And took hold of it for the oxen stumbled. So even as the band is playing all of this raucous, celebratory music, the animal, get the picture, the animal that's pulling the cart, the new cart, steps into a rut, probably in the road, and stumbles, and the ark of God teeters and wobbles a little bit on the cart, and perhaps instinctively, Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark, taking hold of it, and touching it, and, verse 7, the celebration ends immediately. The catastrophic failure of the whole design, the whole faulty design, now takes place. The train now plummets into the water. And the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, or New American Standard Version, Uzzah is struck down because of his irreverence, or New Jerusalem Bible, Uzzah is struck down there because of his crime, and he died there, where? Beside the ark of God. Again, friends, in this chapter of Scripture, ark of God, seven times, ark of the Lord, seven times, Uzzah reached out his sinful mortal, creaturely, weak flesh to take hold of what was God's. You see the picture? Uzzah touched the holy God's residence on earth, if we want to put it that way, and Uzzah paid for it immediately paid for it with his life. Had God not given clear instructions in Numbers 4.15 that if a mortal being were to touch the holy things, that that person would die? Uzzah, the sinful mortal, in effect decided in that moment 
to take charge of what was God's. And God struck his creature down. Uzzah failed to take God's holiness seriously and to take God's majesty seriously. Uzzah assumed here, he assumed that his hand touching the ark would be a better thing than the ark falling down onto the dusty road. As R.C. Sproul once put it, quote, Uzzah assumed that his hand was less polluted than the earth, but God did not want his holy throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil, that which was in rebellion to him. Close quote. To all my friends who are listening today, whether you're here or whether you're watching online, there are things that human creatures must not touch. There are limits which human beings must abide by. Parameters and boundaries and lines that we creatures must never cross. And Uzzah found that out the hard way, as did Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, as did Achan in Joshua chapter 7, as did Ananias and Sapphira find out in Acts chapter 5 in the New Testament, not to mention some of the Corinthians who died for their desecration of the communion table. Now you and I, we love, don't we? We love the truth of God's imminence. That is, we love the truth that God has drawn near to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who took on human flesh on this very earth. We, we love the close presence of God. He walks with me and He talks with me. We love the close presence and the intimacy that we enjoy through faith in Christ. We love the amazing fellowship that we have with God in the risen Christ and in the Holy Spirit. And we should. But friends, we must never forget what is also true of God. That He is transcendent. We must never forget that God reserves full right to rule how He decides over His entire creation, including you and I. We must never lose sight of the fact that God is different than other than all that he has created, including you and I. We must never lose sight of that. He is holy and he is transcendent. To borrow A.W. Tozer's illustration, think about this with me for a minute, think of the most basic form of created life. 
for the sake of argument, a single lowly cell compared to an archangel. The gulf that separates the single cell from the archangel is a huge gulf, isn't it? The archangel is high, high above the single cell in the order of creation. But here's the thing, friends. Both the single cell and the archangel are created. They have both been created by God. The cell and the archangel, though they are separated vastly in terms of glory, are both contingent, dependent life forms. As Tozer put it, the single cell and the archangel both exist in the category of that which is not God even though there's a massive gulf and a massive difference between them. Well, friends, now consider God. God is in an altogether separate category from anything that he has created, including archangels. God is uncreated. He's uncreated. And God is eternal, So that the gulf between the archangel and God is not just a massive gulf like it was between the cell and the archangel. The gulf between the archangel and God is an infinite gulf. The gulf between a holy God and us as sinful human creatures is an infinite gulf. The the gulf between Uzzah And the God who sat enthroned on the cherubim was an infinite gulf. It is very wise for us as human creatures. Doesn't matter who we are, it is very wise for us. We might be the uppermost or the guttermost or somewhere in between. It is very wise for us to really come to grips with our creaturehood to really come to grips with it. Have you come to grips with your creaturehood? It is wise for us always, always, to maintain what I call the creator-creature distinction. The creator-creature distinction. To face up to our lowliness compared to God's greatness is good for us to truly grasp our limited position in this world. And I always find the book of Job to be very helpful for this purpose. If you want to jot down a few passages, take a passage like Job 6 verses 12 and 13. So Job is suffering so grossly and so greatly here, and he says to his friends, listen to what he says, is my strength the strength of stones Or is my flesh bronze? Have I any help in me? So Job is asking rhetorical questions there, but he knows already as a human creature, a human creature like you and I, Job knows that he is certainly not a man of stone. He is certainly not 
a man of bronze, are any of us? Job knows that indeed he has no help for himself and within himself in this situation that he finds himself in. Job is keenly aware that he is a weak creature. Oh, that we could get to the point where all of us on this earth would recognize that we are all weak, dependent, contingent creatures. Job is aware of this, and he's aware that one day he's going to return to the dust. He's altogether conscious of his human mortality and his human frailty as a human being. That's a wise perception. Or take Job 10, verse 8 and following, where Job acknowledges his creatureliness. That it was God who created him from scratch. Job confesses that it was God who had knit him together in the womb. God did that. Job did not come about on his own. God thought Job up and God created Job. Job was aware that he belonged to God. He belonged to God. He was not his own. Also a very true and a very wise perspective. And then in Job 12:13, lastly, Job confesses out loud He confesses out loud that wisdom, might, counsel, and understanding are not with him, (laughs) but with who? With God. Do you know, friends, that the only one who has any real power is God? Listen to the words of Thomas Miller. I think this is wise. He wrote this, quote, Man has a will to power, but he has no real power. Any one of us could get leukemia tomorrow. How's that for being captain of your fate? He says, we're all just children trying to grow up. We think that means getting power. What it really means is learning to accept the powerless nature of the human condition. Close quote. Friends, when we forget the creator-creature distinction, when we ignore the creator-creature distinction, when we don't take seriously enough God's holiness and otherness and freedom, when we start to think far too highly of ourselves as human creatures, when we deny our weak, mortal, creaturely, limited position, when we do all of those things and when we cross those lines, we will soon be wandering into Uzzah-like territory, overreaching into places that we dare not And things are bound to go very badly for us. The train is surely going to end up plunging off the bridge and there will be a catastrophe. And as a human creature, 
as a person living in 2021, I am very concerned for the current human community, at least in the West, as I see us overreaching, touching areas that are God's property, that are God's domain, like Uzzah did. Many in our day are denying or they are ignoring altogether the creator-creature distinction. You and I live in the morass of identity politics. A question, has God not already determined and decreed from eternity, in his eternal counsel, has he not already determined and de decreed the true identity of every single one of his human creatures? God has designed us all as his image bearers. Every single human being that you will ever come across has been created in the image of God. It does not matter if you are Canadian, African, Brazilian, West Indian, Filipino, Iranian, American, Lebanese, male, female, or whatever. If you are a human being, you have been crafted in the image of Almighty God that is your identity. You have been designed to image God on this earth in your lifetime to represent him. That's what you have been designed to do. That is your divinely decreed identity. God has determined it, and he has made it so that domain of human identity, of determining what the human creature is and what the human creature is for, it's God's domain after all, since God is the one who fashioned us. What identity politics wants to do, what ideological social justice ideologues want to do, is to tread into God's domain. It wants to forget God and God's decree of human identity. Ignore that. Identity politics says, as human beings, we will create our very own identity and we will idolize, idolize that self-created identity and we will make it a false god. Identity politics says, my allegiance and my obedience will only be to the self. What the self feels, what the self needs, what the self desires. The self becomes the most high in the world of identity politics. It's the self that is authoritative and not any god. And they say, anybody who would dare challenge my self-created identity is an oppressor. 
Well, in his recent book, Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, Thad Williams poses this crucial question. He asks, and I want you to listen to this question that Williams asks. He says, who has the right, the trustworthiness, worthiness, the goodness and the authority to render the verdict about who we really are? That's a trenchant question. Is it us or is it God who made us? who has the right, the trustworthiness, the goodness, and the authority to render the verdict about who we really are. William says this, we were never designed to bear the God-sized weight of creating and sustaining our own identities. I'll read that again. We were never designed to bear the God-sized weight of creating and sustaining our own identities. He says it puts an unbearable weight on people's shoulders, especially children, when they are indoctrinated to follow their hearts, to be true to themselves, and to dream up their own identities. It deprives them of the unspeakable joy and meaning that go with being authored by someone far more brilliant, strong, and loving than we are. When I hear the all-wise God define my fundamental identity as one of his image-bearing creatures, doesn't matter my skin color, it lifts a weight off of me that I was never designed to bear. I'm concerned about our Western world's Uzzah-like overreach into God's territory of defining human identity. But there's a second area belonging to God in which identity politics is overreaching into divine territory in a very dangerous fashion And that's the idea of sorting out who is innocent or righteous and who is a guilty transgressor. Now, we've touched on this already in these eight weeks, how when it comes to sorting out the righteous from the unrighteous, the weeds from the wheat, the sheep from the goats, whose domain is this? It's God's domain. It's not our domain. And we dare not touch it or we will get severely burned. Now here I'm borrowing from Joshua Mitchell who actually gave me the basic idea for today's sermon, giving credit to where credit is due, in his excellent book, American Awakening, Mitchell connects the preaching passage today, 2 Samuel 6, with the current problem of identity politics. So I give Mitchell credit for that. He argues in his book that identity politics, or as we've been calling it, ideological social justice, it's the same thing, that it reaches like Uzzah did into what he calls the mortally inaccessible mystery, the mortally inaccessible mystery of transgression and innocence. 
Again, Mitchell argues that identity politics reaches like Uzzah did into the mortally inaccessible mystery of transgression and innocence. One way that we could put this is that right now in the Western world, we have this fascination, this utter fascination with group identities. We've tried to point that out already in this sermon series. Everybody is assigned to a group, group identities. We now have this dynamic where one mortal human group, mortal human group, scapegoats another mortal human group and tries to purge out that group. And it does this based on the curious human calculation that one group or groups are innocent while other groups or a group is most certainly the transgressor. Guilt for the transgressor group is based on their skin tone and according to the worldview, the transgression they are guilty of can never be forgiven. There is no forgiveness. But friends, the reality actually is, the reality actually is that the sorting out of human beings into righteous and unrighteous groups, the sorting out of the weeds from the wheat in the human community. The separation of sheep from goats is God's domain. It is God's business. It is God's territory. And we know at least this much from God's revealed word that contrary to the mood du jour, the mood of the day, God is not, he, listen, he is not going to sort people out based on skin tone, based on gender, based on social identity. Instead, with all wisdom and with pure, holy righteousness, God will sort all people out based on whether they remain in Adam or whether they are in Christ. And right now, and for all eternity, for the human being who is in Christ, I hope you are in Christ today, no matter your skin tone, no matter your identity, no matter your gender, no matter your age, no matter your past, for the person who is in Christ, there is now no condemnation. Identity politics or ideological social justice reaches dangerously into God's territory like Uzzah did in the area of human identity and in the area of human innocence versus transgression. This overreach will not end well unless there is repentance. The willful dismissal of the creator-creature distinction will not end well. Mark my words, it will not end well unless there is repentance. 
Well, friends, what we've been attempting over the eight weeks of this sermon series, now coming to a conclusion, we've been attempting to think together about the current shape of the Western world and our place as kingdom people in this contemporary world. We've been attempting to discern by the Word of God what is true in our culture, and there is much that is true, and what may be false. To see more clearly the vivid contrast, and it is a vivid contrast, between kingdom values and a godless culture's values. To understand what God has commanded his church to do and to think versus what the world is teaching. It's important for us to make gains, isn't it? To make gains. It's like going to the gym. To make gains in our spiritual shape and our spiritual strength because right now we are being buffeted by a cultural tidal wave. We need to make gains and be spiritually strong by God's Spirit and by His Word. So I hope and pray that this little series has been in some way, shape, or form a help to you. Now to apply, and then I'm done, to apply today's sermon and to actually apply um, all that we've been meditating on in this entire series, it's going to mean what? It's going to mean getting on our knees and seeking God for fresh humility. Fresh humility, to have God help us see in a fresh way, in a new way, the vast gulf that separates him and ourselves. To see afresh how majestic God is. We need fresh vision of that, how glorious God is, how holy and how mighty he really is and how limited and frail each and every one of us actually is. So pray that reality down afresh in your life, would you? The creator-creature distinction so that you can be a person who goes out and acts, wherever you are, in appropriate, creaturely humility. Let's ask God for correct vision so that we look at our neighbor not as some sort of opponent, like most people are doing these days, not as an opponent, but rather as a fellow image bearer who is just as messed up as we are. As kingdom people, our eyes remain fixed on Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus Christ our Lord, the only Redeemer of the world. The person in whom came God's presence on earth. It wasn't on the ark anymore, it was in the person, in the flesh of Jesus Christ. Jesus who died on the cross, for who? For his enemies, Romans 5.10. He went to the cross to die for his enemies. And we ask the Spirit's power, being in Christ, to do the hard thing and go out and love our enemies. We forgive others as Christ has forgiven us by the payment of his life. We outdo one another in showing honor. And we bless those who persecute us. We are never wise in our own sight, and we repay no one evil for evil. If our enemy is hungry, we feed him. If our enemy is thirsty, we give him something to drink. We are kingdom people. 
We do not overcome with evil, but we overcome evil with good. We let our light shine in a darkening world. And lastly, we let God be God, and we leave the things of God to God. We don't dare tread into territory that God has reserved for himself, pretending to play his role. We maintain the creator-creature distinction for the glory of God and for the flourishing of our neighbor. And now, my friends, go out into the world after you've heard this word today and act out these kingdom values in your context, in the power, and in the strength that God supplies. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you humbled, and we come to you trembling at this word that you have revealed and given. And we say to you, Lord, that we are created, we are contingent, we are weak, we are dependent, but we know your goodness, Lord, that as the infinitely transcendent God that you have drawn near in the person of Jesus Christ and that we can have this intimate second-by-second relationship with Jesus, the Holy Spirit. Lord God, thank you for being our God. Thank you for teaching us. Thank you for molding and shaping us. Thank you for cutting out the parts that need to be cut out in us and putting in while we draw breath, the parts that you would have uh, as you are transforming us into the image, greater and greater, the image of your, your son, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for your work in us, and we pray that we would be workers in the field, servants for you, who take this word seriously and act out kingdom values in our context. We pray in Jesus' name for your help. Amen.